Good evening. Well, I've tried to dress like a preacher prior to tonight. I figured I'd dress like a missionary tonight. So you saw me dressed as a preacher. Tonight I'm dressed like a missionary. I ran out of clean shirts, so you'll have to <laughs> forgive me. And I am a little bit cold, so I'm going to have to amp up the preaching a little bit just to stay warm tonight. I hope you all give me a little grace there. It's kind of hard to keep clothes looking nice and prepared when you're dragging them all over the world. My suit hung in this trailer for two months, parked at a church near the Washington, D.C. airport. It must have fallen off the, the rack when we pulled it in there, and it laid in the corner of that trailer for two months all crumpled up, so I never could get it to look right. But anyway, uh, that's all uh, uh, insignificant. It's an honor to have been here this week, and I'm humbled that you would come out and hear the Word of God. I trust that what's been declared has been a blessing to you, and I trust you found it to agree with the revelation of God in His Word. Anything I've said that agrees with the Word of God, I pray you'll take it, ponder upon it, apply it, and use it. But if there's anything that's come out of my mouth this week that does not agree with the testimony of God's Word, you have my permission to cast it in the proverbial garbage can because it's worthless unless it's in agreement with the revelation of our Maker, the Lord God. Well, it's fun, funny how when you travel a lot and you get to go back to some of the strangest of places, you can learn things that shed light on incidents that happened many years before. I told myself several years ago I was going to write a book, and I had envisioned this format whereby it would be a collection of short stories from all of our travels that... Uh, dealt with different things that we had encountered as we've tried to preach the Word of God at the end of the earth. And I wrote a few of them down and they've been edited and everything, but I just never finished that project. And maybe I'll get around to it someday. Maybe I won't. won't. But I remember an incident that happened back in 2006 when my wife and I, and we only had one child at the time, were up in northwestern India where we just spent some time a short while ago, and a missionary friend of mine and myself endeavored to climb this very high peak there in the Indian Himalayas. It was just over 20,000 feet tall, and it was a four-day expedition to get to the top. And we took with us a young Ladakhi Christian uh, and, and another Ladakhi, and we used it as an opportunity to try to disciple the one young man and share the gospel with the other. But as after we had summited the peak and were coming down the mountain, we found what looked to be a lost yak wandering in these high mountain pastures. And we figured, well, some farmer's lost his animal. That can't be good, so we're going to lead this animal back down the mountain to the village and maybe we'll find the owner. We were up there and it was very remote and lonely. There was no one else up there. At the top of the mountain was a huge pile of stones where the Buddhists had... Uh, covered it with their prayer flags that they tie up and the wind's supposed to carry these prayers sketched on these flags up to the great Buddha. It's all a bunch of religious nonsense but we carried some of our own prayer flags up there and uh, they were blank ones and we had written scripture verses that said Jesus is Lord and we draped them up there. Hopefully somebody found them but on our way back we picked up this yak and decided we'd take it to the village and try to seek out the owner well, that night we camped about 14,000 feet. It was freezing cold and we woke up in the morning and were greeted by this very old man with a cane who had come walking up that valley. 
He had fallen in the river. His feet, he had a pair of sandals on. His feet were blue. They were so cold. But he had heard it through the grapevine. We don't know where that somebody had found a lost yak and he had lost his animal and he was really, really hoping that we had found it. I don't know how he heard that because there was no one up there. I don't know who told him. I don't know if the wind told him. I have no idea. But this poor old man, we invited him inside and gave him some tea and gave us an opportunity to share the gospel and we had some really warm socks that uh, an outdoor sock company had uh, sent some samples with us to take some photos and were paying me to do that on this expedition and so we were able to share that with him and he was so excited to have a pair of socks. Well we were like okay come out here let's see if this is your yak. Well he went behind and he very shortly came back and said that's not my animal. And I thought to myself, and it's been a mystery to me ever since, how did you know that quickly that that wasn't your animal? You didn't even really look at it. You didn't go examine it or get up close. You just, that's not my animal. And I never could understand that. Long story short, I just assumed he would continue searching the hillsides, and instead, as we packed up our camp, he decided to walk with us back down the mountain. And I never could understand that either. Well, my friend got to talking to him in his language a little bit, and he basically communicated, we had prayed with him or whatever, we had shared the gospel, prayed with him that God would help him find his animal. Well, he decided there was no point to continue searching. And we were puzzled by that, so we asked him, and his response was simple. This was just an old Buddhist man from a village high up in India, probably never ever heard the gospel. But his response was, there's no reason for me to continue looking for this animal. You people prayed to your God to restore it to me, and I believe He will. So why should I go searching? And I was just convicted by that level of faith that I so often struggled to have in my Christian walk. But to this day, I never understood why he was so adamant that wasn't his yak without hardly even looking at it. Well, this last time I was up in Ladakh, I was talking to somebody about Ladakhi culture and asking a question about something and they were telling me if you ever see a yak that has these tassels pierced through its ear, they kind of hang down. Sometimes they're red, sometimes they're white. If you ever see a yak with those tassels in the ear, what the Buddhists do is they, when a yak reaches the end of its service, they'll bore its ears with these tassels and turn it loose in the wilderness and it's free to go because it served its owner Now it's time for it to retire and live in the wilderness. Well, that yak had tassels in its ears, and so now it hit me that that man saw that and realized, that's not my yak. He's retired. He's been turned out into the wilderness. And so it's kind of interesting how you learn things like that that shed light on the situation. So not only did that old Buddhist man have faith, he was also an honest man. Could have easily taken that yak that had been turned into the wilderness, but didn't do so and acknowledged that it wasn't his when no one around would have known any different had he taken it back with him. So it's, it's interesting to run into honesty and simple faith in parts of the world where uh, that would put us to shame uh, in our lives as we call ourselves Christians and claim the name of Christ. So as I wrote that story that maybe will make it into a book one day, maybe it won't, the title of that short story was Shamed by the Faith of a Buddhist Farmer. And uh, that was a really convicting uh, uh, a scenario to encounter years ago. And it's amazing how the Lord will teach you things like that. I could go on and on about stories like that, how God's been so good to us as we've had the great privilege of preaching the gospel all over the world. But it's not about me. 
It's not about me this week. It's about the Lord and what He would say to us regarding revival in His Word. For the sake of review, we've been talking about revival this week and what would it look like, what should it look like in the days we're living in. The first couple of, uh, on Sunday, we talked about the context in which revival, if it is going to happen in the local church, the context that it will undeniably take place in, and that's the context of last days apostasy. We are living in the last days when the church is spiraling down that period of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And if there is revival, that revival will have to take place in such a context. And then I talked about how you can't have revival in your life if you don't have salvation. Revival is impossible unless you've been born again. So if you're seeking revival and you've not been saved, you're wasting your time. You need to get saved. And then we talked about how revival in the church and in our lives cannot be planned and it cannot be organized. We organized some meetings this week. I organized my schedule so I could be home in the country and come share with you all this week. Brother Mike and I planned that months ago. But we couldn't organize or can't organize revival. Revival is the sovereign act of a sovereign God for His sovereign glory on His timetable and on His terms. We need to understand that. We can preach about revival, we can talk about it, but it's a gift from God, just like salvation. And we need to pray for it and wait for it as the Scriptures command us to wait for the Lord. And then last night we talked about how revival, it's a sovereign act of a sovereign God. We can't bring it, neither have we the power to stop it if God intends to bring it. Notwithstanding, our God is a holy God, He's a righteous God, and He cannot tolerate willful disobedience and sin. So sin is a hindrance to revival in the church. That's a biblical principle. It's a historic principle. Sin is a hindrance. And any revival begins with repentance. Any other trailhead leads to a dead end in the woods. Revival in the church starts with repentance. It doesn't start anywhere else. That's biblical. We see it in the life of the people of Israel. And it's historical. We see that every single time in history when God poured out His Spirit and brought great revival. The great awakenings here in America, some of the revivals and missionary activities that have taken place around the world. And then tonight, I want to talk about one final biblical principle concerning revival. We talked about where it begins last night. Tonight, this last service, I want to talk about where revival ends. You see, there's a place it always starts. That's repentance. There's a place it always ends. doesn't end anywhere else if it's true revival. Things come and go in the church. They start various places and end various places. But if we're talking about biblical Holy Spirit revival, it always starts with repentance and it always ends at the same place. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. I'm just going to read a couple of verses tonight. A very succinct exhortation, a very succinct command by our Lord. The last command He gave while here on earth. Not a suggestion, but a commission. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. 
It is written, And He said unto them, this is Jesus speaking, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. My friends, that's the great commission of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The revival in our hearts and in the church begins with repentance and it always ends with the the faithful carrying out of the Great Commission. It doesn't end anywhere else. If you study revival in history, it always produced missionary activity. It always produced evangelism and outreach in the churches. And people came to Christ. We often refer to the periods of revival in American history as Great Awakenings. What happened in the church was a revival. What was produced was spiritual awakening in the communities that were affected. So, true revival always brings awakening to the lost. It's inextricably tied to the Great Commission, both biblically and historically. These words by our Lord Jesus Christ here are not a good suggestion as, as so many live as if it is. It's not a good suggestion. It's a great commission. The last words Jesus gave His disciples before He ascended to the Father. Yet there are more excuses in the churches of America today made not to fulfill this commission than any other Scripture. More people have more excuses as to why they can't do this than any other command that Jesus gave. It's amazing to me. The Great Commission, do you, do you, do you realize the Great Commission's not just here? It appears five times in the New Testament. It's stated a little bit differently because it emphasizes different aspects of our Lord's command. But the command appears five times. Here in Mark 16, I like it because it's succinct and straight to the point. How do you argue with our Lord when He says, Go ye into all the world? That's not a job just for the missionary. It's not a job just for the pastor. It's not a job just for Jesus' disciples. It's a job for the church. And if a church has no burden or vision or love or care for missions then it's not revived and it never will be. It's dead. Five times in the New Testament. Let's look at those tonight. Turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. That old familiar passage we learn as kids in Bible school or in Sunday school. 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. The Great Commission is about baptizing and making disciples. It's not about running a church like a business. It's not about filling pews with false converts who may have repeated a sinner's prayer but they have no idea about repentance or what it is to be born again. It's about making and baptizing disciples. It's also about teaching the whole counsel of God. What did Jesus say? Teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Jesus taught His disciples many things, much of which was uncomfortable. 
It was obviously uncomfortable for the masses and for the Jews. There's one place in the Gospel of John where Jesus is teaching hard truth and people that claimed to be following Him turned away and couldn't follow Him anymore. They couldn't handle it. There were people that were claiming to follow and believe upon Him and Jesus rebuked them and said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And these so-called believers in the very next breath were accusing Him of having a devil. Jesus told His disciples to go and teach all things. We can't be faithful to the Great Commission as individual believers or as a local church unless we're willing to teach the whole counsel of God. Even that which is uncomfortable. When Paul the Apostle saw the Ephesian elders for the last time on his way to Jerusalem, they came out to meet him. And they spent time together and wept upon each other's shoulders. And he warned them about ravening wolves that would come and try to distract them and turn them away from the Gospel. And he reminded them that I have not failed to teach you the whole counsel of God. I've taught you everything. And my friends, that's a model for us. If, this, if, if, we're, if, if we are those that won't say everything that God commands, but we're ashamed or shy of this or that, we can't have revival in our lives. If a church won't declare the whole counsel of God in times when there is a risk to do so, then there's not revival, neither can there be. If a missionary is so scared of getting kicked out of a country that he withholds the whole counsel of God, then he's not revived and he's not obedient to our Lord's command. Teaching the whole counsel of God, not tickling ears and ecumenical compromise. My friends, the great commission from our Lord is not to work together with Muslims and Catholics. It's not to work together with those that hate our Lord to try to bring about some humanitarian benefit to society. The Great Commission commission is not, was not, and never will be ecumenical in nature. In John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer on behalf of His followers, Jesus in His humanity praying to God the Father, He asked that the Lord would would cause His followers to be one, even as He was one with the Father. His prayer was for unity in the body. Now a lot of people go to those verses and they use that as an excuse to justify ecumenism and yoking with those who don't preach the Gospel. Well, first of all, those verses aren't a command. They're a prayer by our Lord in His humanity toward God the Father. In just a few verses earlier, Jesus in that same prayer cries out to God and says, Lord, sanctify them by Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. So that makes it pretty clear that you can't have unity unless it's in the Word of God. The Bible never calls us to unity or yoking with the unfruitful works of darkness. And if our idea about the Great Commission is ecumenism, then we can't know revival. We haven't known revival. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but reprove them. 
Back in 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, there was a righteous king in the southern kingdom of Judah by the name of Jehoshaphat. And he was used mightily by the Lord. But there was a chapter in his life when he went north to the kingdom of Israel and buddied up with King Ahab. And they kind of came together in a nice little ecumenical sense. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings that the northern kingdom of Israel ever saw. And Ahab convinced Jehoshaphat to bring his army and to partner with him as they went to war against the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead. Well, it's in that story that Ahab meets his demise according to the prophecies against his house. And the, and the, the dynasty of Ahab comes to an end. Jehoshaphat escapes with his life and comes back home. And as he's coming back home, he's met by a prophet of the Lord named Jehu. And Jehu rebukes him for yoking with wicked King Ahab. I believe it's in chapter 19. I'll just turn there and read the words real quickly. It says, And Jehu the son of Hanani the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore wrath is upon thee from before the Lord. The Great Commission never was about ecumenism or yoking with the ungodly and the enemies of our Lord as so many churches do today. And there is wrath and judgment from God. Yes, we are to love the lost. We are to love them enough to tell them the truth. But we don't yoke together with the enemies of our Lord and those that would tarnish that gospel message. That is not the Great Commission. There's no place for ecumenical unity with doctrines of devils. These days, as a preacher, as a missionary, as a church, you've got two options, really, in these Laodicean dark days. Two options. A limited message or a limited audience. Those are your only options, brother, as a preacher. Brother, you know this. As a missionary, I can either seek, I can either preach a limited message or I'm going to have to deal with a limited audience. Those are the only choices. The former, a limited message, is the fruit of disobedience. It's not revival. It's not the Great Commission. The latter, a limited audience, is the fruit of genuine revival and obedience. That's just the way it is. Which will you choose? As a church, would you rather have the Word of God preached in its entire council and have lots of empty seats? Or would you rather fill these pews? Because the pastor knows how to tickle ears. I know what you'd rather have. The proof is right here tonight. I'm not offended by empty seats. I've told you that all week. It's a privilege for me to preach to a partially filled sanctuary because it tells me the ones that are here are here because they want to be here. The ones that don't want to be, I'd rather you stay home anyway. The ecumenical activity of the church these days, both here and on the mission field, astounds me. It astounds me. And it's in the news headlines every day. Things that the Bible is so clear about when it comes to righteousness and sin, we are actually discussing in the churches today over whether it's right or wrong. How can we have revival in such times? Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And Jesus says there in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always. Not always. 
In that old English, in that old King James, it says all way. You realize there's a difference there. It's not just an old word. There are two words in the English language, all way and always. Always, it's very slightly different. We don't use the former in modern English. But always means all the time. Always, if you ever see it singular, what it, its meaning is a little, little more specific. It means at every point or at every step along the journey. A little bit different. But if you read what's being said here, Jesus says to go, to baptize, and to teach, and He will be with us always at every step. That is, conditioned upon us doing what He said. He's not saying, I'm just going to be with you always, no matter what you do. He's saying, I will be with you at every point of that journey as you obey what I've commanded you. It's funny how a little single letter can shed the light. I love this King James Bible. When we do Bible translation in Nepal, we think the Nepali people deserve to have a Bible that's based upon the text tradition of the King James text. So many Bibles put out by the Bible Society today are so poorly translated. and It's sad. It's sad. God's Word is God's Word. He can still use it. But why would I want to walk into battle with a dull butter knife when I can have a double-edged broadsword? Luke 24. We've got Jesus giving His great commission, stating it a little bit differently, but the same command nonetheless. Luke 24, 46-47. In Mark 16, He tells us straight up what to do. In Matthew 28, He tells us what that involves making and baptizing disciples and teaching the whole counsel of God. Here in Luke 24, He tells us what the message is to be as this commission is carried out. Luke 24, 46 and 47, And He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you were witnesses of these things. Here we have the message of the Great Commission. The method of the Great Commission. You can't obey this commission without preaching. It's impossible. You can't obey the Great Commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ without preaching. He says here that these things would be preached in His name to all nations. You know, preaching is not real popular today in American churchianity. Preaching is not real popular on the mission field anymore. It's all about building relationships and building business platforms and running everything like a business and trying to attract people and humanitarian, eff humanitarian efforts. The latest fad that's overtaken missions these days is what people call raising awareness about sex trafficking. If I meet another young missionary who tries to lecture me about missions and talks about raising awareness about sex trafficking, I think I'm going to throw up. I've never met a single one of these so-called young missionaries who are all into the sex trafficking that's actually doing something to stop it. They know how to talk about it. But I don't know what they're doing. We ran into some young people in Nepal one time that were... There for that reason, we don't really know what that means. Sex trafficking is a problem. And there are things that can be done. And 
buddy of mine thought we'd mess around with them a little bit. We were serious. We wanted to find out where are these places where this, where this is happening? Where are these villages where the parents are selling their children into sl sexual slavery? We're going to go there. We're going to lift up our voices like a trumpet and upbraid those cities and preach judgment against them that they might repent. And if there's border stations down on the Indian border where these girls are being held captive, I've got a friend that's got access and contacts where we can arm ourselves and go in there and get them. I'm willing to do that. So we thought we'd ask these young missionaries about where are these places, this is what we're going to do. So we told this young lady, you know, we want to go in here and do some preaching, preach judgment, and preach the gospel, and we're going to get some weapons and we're going to go and rescue these girls. And it was just like, oh, you can't do that. I'm not going to tell you where these places are. You can't do that. And I'm thinking, you're not really here to stop sex trafficking. You're here to live comfortably in another country and look like a missionary. But you're not really doing anything. But that's the big fad nowadays. Nobody cares about murdered unborn children. Nobody cares about that. That's the ultimate trafficking in our country today. But... It's amazing all of these things that are supposed to be missions, but they don't involve preaching the gospel. How is that? How is that even possible? It's really sad. All of these fads come and go. But God has ordained preaching. The foolishness of preaching, it says there in 1 Corinthians 1, God has ordained the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. You want to stop sex trafficking? You want to stop abortion? You want to stop the sins that run rampant in this country? Let's go preach the gospel. That's the answer, is the gospel. The gospel is the answer to these problems. And if we throw it out, we're just peddling against the current in terms of ministry. Right here in Luke 24, the message is the gospel. It's ordained that we would go and preach that Christ suffered and rose from the dead the third day. That's the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I've declared the gospel unto you that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that on the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. And the Great Commission is to preach that message to the ends of the earth. It also is to preach repentance. Jesus said that repentance and remission of sin should be preached. Without repentance, my friends, there is no gospel. Everybody wants to talk about what Jesus did as if He was some kind of paragon example and as if He's some sort of flu shot we can take and just keep living our lives the way we want to live. And repentance has been removed from the gospel and preaching in churches today. Without repentance... There is no remission of sins, my friends. That's an integral part of the gospel. And to be a faithful ambassador for Christ is to preach repentance. The fruit of revival is the carrying out of the Great Commission. The carrying out of the Great Commission involves preaching the gospel and repentance from sin. Without those things, there's no revival. There's no true obedience to our Lord's command. It also involves preaching beyond our own backyard. Jesus says here that repentance... And remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning in their backyard, beginning in Jerusalem. Is the vision, if the vision of a church is your own backyard and it doesn't go beyond that, then you don't know revival and you never will. Because revival produces 
Obedience to the Great Commission and the Great Commission looks beyond our own backyard. Doesn't mean all of you can go there. But the church can hold the ropes for those that do. The church can support those that do. The church can send out missionaries, raise them up within their midst, and look beyond their backyard in those ways. You know, for us, it's a lot easier to go to all nations nowadays than it was for the apostles and the missionaries of old. Really, it can be said that you don't even necessarily have to leave your own backyard to meet all nations. Because they're all here. They're all here. Go to any university campus and you'd be shocked where, where the people come from. I don't know how they get into this country. But I've met Saudis and Bangladeshis and people from Egypt, people from Russia, South, Southern Africa, Southeast Asia, all kinds of people from these countries that come to our university campuses. And what an awesome opportunity for them to hear the Gospel. One day back uh, in September... Brother Ricky and I were sitting around in Leh up in Ladakh, northern India. It's a Buddhist area at high altitude. A lot of Israelis come up there, a lot of tourists during the summer. We decided we'd go do some outreach. We didn't really know what it was going to look like. We put some tracks in our backpack, some Ladakhi material. There is no gospel material in the Ladakhi language I was able to find where the Bible, the New Testament, had been translated into Ladakhi and it's available on the internet, but the guys that did it were kicked out of Ladakh. They're not, they, they had their Indian visas revoked, but these scriptures are still online, so I was able to pull that script off and I made a one-page tract before we left. It was the entire John 3. It was just John 3. John 3 and Ladakhi. Jesus and Nicodemus. And I put a little website at the bottom where someone could go read the entire Bible in Ladakhi. And I printed off a single copy. I folded it up and stuck it in my stuff. And when we got to India, I just went to a, photo, a Xerox place and Xeroxed about 500 copies of it. Those only tracks we had in the local language. We left them all over the place, kind of like Martin Luther style. We'd put them on doors at night and slip them in cars, things like that. But we threw a few of those in the backpack, some Hindi tracks, a couple of Hebrew New Testaments, a few English. We didn't know what was going to happen that day. We decided to hike up to the top of this monastery and then over to this other Buddhist shrine hoping we would find some Israelis. But by the end of that day, we'd shared the Gospel with an old Ladakhi monk, a couple of Indian tourists, four Israelis, two people from Japan, three people from Poland and one American. In that small little town up in northern India at 12,000 feet. It's a lot easier to go to all nations with the gospel today than it was back then. And yet, we don't do it. A few years ago, a friend of mine and I tried to climb the highest peak in South America. It was our desire to do that, but we thought we'd use it as an opportunity to share the gospel in base camp and with people we met on the mountain. And in base camp at 14,000 feet, we went from tent to tent talking to people and we were able to share the gospel with people from 14 different countries in that one place. University campuses. I know there's at least two people from India here in Butner or Creedmoor. They run the motel we're staying in. <laughs> I've got some uh, Hindi tracks in my car, but we can be a witness to all nations right here if we really want to be. That's the world we live in today. 
tells us in the book of Daniel that a sign of the last days is that men will run to and fro and travel all over the place and knowledge and technology will be increased. That's the sign of the time of the end. And that's what we're in now. Men running to and fro all over the place. And it's an open door to share the gospel with people of all nations if we're willing to. If we're willing to get out, out of our country racist attitudes and talk to people that are a different color, from a different culture, we can be a witness to people from all nations, even right here. And we're all guilty of that if we're honest to some extent. We're all guilty of that. And we need to repent and put that away from us because as much as it's aggravating for people to come into this country and all the problems we have with immigration, and there's problems there. And I think our president's getting ready to act like a dictator and make some executive order and nobody's going to say anything and just give amnesty to all these people here illegally. There's reason to be upset about that. But what can we do? Why don't we look at it as a sovereign act of God whereby we can share the gospel with people flocking in here that may not hear it in their own country? When I was down in South Africa um, last spring, working with Brother Ricky. In Cape Town, there's a whole neighborhood that's been overtaken by Somali Muslims that come from Somalia. Now, Somalia is in East Africa, and it is a dangerous place. They have pirates and stuff that sail off the coast and attack ships and stuff all the time. And that's where one of our Black Hawk helicopters went down a few years ago, and that American serviceman was drugged through the streets. That's a wicked place. It's it's Islamic to the teeth and most people hate Christians and they hate Americans. It's just a dangerous place. I could never go there and preach the gospel. I'd be dead in five minutes. Well, for whatever reason, a lot of Somalis have come down to South Africa to work. And so there's this neighborhood there just full of them. And it looks like a Somalian town. They've really trashed it up. But I was really encouraged... My local church down there, the pastor and another brother, once a week would walk down into that neighborhood. These were white folk from South Africa. Do you realize there's a lot of white folk in South Africa whose families have been living in Africa for four or five hundred years? And they're just as African as the black African, but nobody cares about that. Um, anyway, it's kind of interesting. Not everything is as cut and dry as we think it is. But this brother, these couple of brothers would go once a week down to this neighborhood and they would carry a big, beautiful, ornate Bible in the Somali language. And these Somalis would look at them and think it was a Quran. It wasn't. It was a Bible. And they like, why are you walking around with a... Actually, this is a Bible in your language. Have you ever seen something like this? And these guys would go down there and preach the gospel. And since it was South Africa and there was freedom there, the consequences weren't what they would be if they were walking the streets of Mogadishu up in Somalia. But anyway, we went down there with them one day and we decided we were going to go in there. And there were Somalis everywhere. And we walked in and there was another brother with a car pasted with Scripture messages and a huge speaker on the top of it just preaching the gospel. We don't even know who he was. We met up and he's like, you guys want to use my, my, my speaker? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So I sat in that car and preached for about an hour and then Ricky did the same. But what an amazing opportunity to preach the gospel to people from a nation like that when I could never do that in their country. Man, we had some great conversations that day, gave out a few tracts couple of lively conversations, you know, they'd surround you and ask questions and sometimes the Muslims would get a little riled up, but we were in South Africa where we had the freedom to do it. 
not in their backyard. They could have killed us in Mogadishu, but he, there in Cape Town they heard the gospel. So you know, if those people hadn't been there, maybe they'd have never heard the gospel. We ought to look at floods of immigrants as an opportunity for us as the church to go to all nations without even having to leave our own country. It's amazing how these things are happening in these last days. The last, uh, uh, over in John 20, verse 21, Jesus states the Great Commission yet another way. Chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. As Jesus was sent out by the Father to build His church, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus was sent by His Father to build His church. Even so, we are sent by Him to build His church. You see, the Great Commission is also about edifying the body of Christ and planting New Testament churches. It really isn't about parachurch efforts. It really isn't about humanitarian crusades or raising awareness about society's problems. These things are not the true fruit of revival. The true fruit of revival is that which builds up the local church. That which proceeds from the local church. My friends, Christ established the church as the core of New Testament ministry. And obedience to the Great Commission builds up the church. It doesn't separate itself from it. I believe it's so important for a missionary to have ties to the local church. I believe it's so important. If there's those in the local church holding the ropes for the missionary, then it's his responsibility to do what they've commissioned him to do, and it's his responsibility to come back and give testimony of what God has done. That's the model that Paul and Barnabas left for us, when they finished their first missionary journey, they came back to Antioch, and it says they rehearsed all the things that God had done to the believers. So much of missions today exist apart from the local church, and it shouldn't be that way. That's not the fruit of revival. The fruit of revival is obedience to the Great Commission, and obedience to the Great Commission is going out is being sent out to do as Jesus was sent out to do, and that was to build up the church. And then finally, full circle, uh, we've got also Acts chapter 1-8. You know, I'll read that real quick. That really is the, 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 uh, another statement of the Great Commission there in Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, You shall receive power... After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. In the the original language there, that word witness is where we also get the word martyr from. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. The Great Commission is to be witnesses everywhere. If we can't do it, then we can give so others can. If we can't give, we should pray that God would raise up laborers to go to the ends of the earth. If you're like me and you can go, you can give and you can pray, you really should be doing all three. Finally, I'll just take you full circle back to Mark here. Here's the crux of it all. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
That's man's responsibility. That's the church's responsibility. That is the fruit of genuine revival. Go into all the world and preach. Verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's God's responsibility. So in other words, the Great Commission is rooted in obedience, not in results. Verse 15, man's responsibility, man's commission. Verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. That's God's responsibility. You see, only God can give the increase to our evangelistic and um, missionary efforts. No man can come to God unless the Spirit draws him. John 6.44 It's God peradventure that gives men repentance as we instruct them in meekness. 2 Timothy 2 So we really have no reason to ever get weary in well-doing if we have our theology straight. Just like God is the only one that can author revival. He's the only one that can author results. We aren't called to the the results. We're called to obedience. The Bible never commands us to save souls. That's what God does. But it does exhort us to be witnesses. That's the Great Commission, my friends. The Great Commission is making disciples, baptizing them, teaching the whole counsel of God. The Great Commission involves preaching the Gospel and repentance from sin. The Great Commission involves being, building up the church of God. Edifying the believer. It involves going to all places in one way or another. And it's about obedience and not results. Those are the ultimate fruits of revival. It's ultimately where revival in the church will lead. When we look at the Great Commission and we see these words that Jesus spoke, it's very interesting because we can go right to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 is His last statement there and then He ascends back to heaven. Acts naturally follows the Great Commission and it is a historical record of how the earliest disciples understood that Great Commission and then carried it out. So we've got Jesus' words. Now if we want to know what it looks like to obey them, we read the book of Acts because that's the record of how the earliest disciples understood those things. It is a model for us of what the Great Commission looks like and what the fruit of revival looks like. The foundation of the Great Commission, if we read the book of Acts, is bold, public, and intentional evangelism. There is no other foundation. That is the model left for us by the apostles. Have you no wish for others to be saved? You don't know revival. Maybe you don't know salvation. If you want to talk to Charles Spurgeon, he said, have you no wish for others to be saved? You are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. That were his words. The book of Acts is our model for Great Commission ministry. Throughout, you see bold, public, and intentional evangelism. I could summarize some things tonight. It's getting a little bit late. But you know, you look at Peter at Pentecost, Peter and John, and... Acts chapter 5, it tells us the the first believers ceased not to preach and teach Jesus Christ. You have Stephen and his bold preaching. Paul, 
he got saved in Acts chapter 9 and it says he straightway started preaching Christ in the synagogues. Paul, Paul and Barnabas and Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium and Lystra, Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, Paul on Mars Hill in Athens, his bold preaching to King Agrippa, all of these things are models for us about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, to be revived and to follow the Great Commission. In fact, the Bible commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And if you've experienced revival, it naturally follows that you would be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? I've preached this here before. I'm not going to get into it too much tonight. Acts chapter 4, 31 says the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. In the very next phrase, they went and preached the Word of God with boldness. What does being filled with the Spirit look like? It looks like being a bold witness for Jesus Christ. It's right there in Acts 4.31. It's not falling over and laughing and screaming and hollering and acting like a maniac. The whole counsel of Scriptures mandate that we proclaim the Gospel publicly and intentionally. Not just the book of Acts. Consider that virtually every Bible preacher, going all the way back to Noah, a preacher of righteousness, all the way to John, imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, was a public witness. Every one of them. More than 90% of all sermons preached in the Bible were proclaimed not behind a pulpit, not in a synagogue, but in a public forum. The clear command to be a bold public witness was given to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jonah, Noah, Jesus' disciples, Paul, passed on to Timothy. You can add to this the examples of Ezra and Stephen and Jesus Christ Himself who really, more than anything else, was a street preacher in His humanity. You, and one has more than sufficient mandate from the Lord to motivate any Christian, especially those claiming to be, have experienced revival, to be a public witness. A lot of people want to talk about lifestyle evangelism. Well, my lifestyle, that's my witness. My friends, that's not enough. True, our life and our good works ought to supplement the gospel, but not supplant. They can never supplant the gospel. The testimony, our testimony, supplements the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Jesus did say, Let your light so shine before men that they should see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul talks about. Letting, being lights in a dark world through our good works. Yes, these things ought to demonstrate the words that we preach, but they're no substitute for being a public witness. Paul said, I believe, therefore I speak. That's the fruit of genuine revival. If you truly stake your faith on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you cannot help but speak this faith to a life lost and dying world. Nowadays, people claim lifestyle evangelism, building relationships, or complex missionary strategies that are nothing more, if we are honest with ourselves, than excuses to keep quiet. Because it's in speaking that in speaking lies the real risk of suffering for Christ, if we want to be honest. The Bible tells us not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. If we are in our personal witness or in our corporate witness as a church, then we don't know revival. 
Biblical evangelism is to be a lifestyle for a revived believer. Not a program or a scheduled event. But your lifestyle is not your evangelism. Evangelism ought to be your lifestyle. If that makes any sense. Amen. That's the fruit of revival. Some people object to being a bold witness these days in the churches. and I've been <coughs> criticized more by so-called Christians when preaching on the street than I have by lost folks, it seems. Or when we've been bold overseas, it's usually missionaries that have a problem with it. Sometimes more so than the Hindus and the Muslims. I've often been told, you know, you guys are being too bold. You're turning people away from the gospel. That's a man-centered attitude. And that attitude must be evaluated along with history's fact. History's fact is this, church. Every Bible-based ministry from the dawn of time until now has always encountered the same ratio of acceptance. Even today when we have all these user-friendly strategies designed to attract people to the church, it's the same. The gospel is still rejected by the masses and received by only a few. It's always been that way. It was that way in Noah's day. It's that way today. Why do we think we can make it any different with our strategies? It's always going to be a few that hear and believe and many that reject. Jesus Himself promised this. Many, <coughs> excuse me, many are called, but few are chosen. Turning people away from the Gospel? Is that even possible if God's the author of salvation? If God draws men to Himself, how do I have the power to turn somebody away? In fact, where would I turn them away to if they're already perishing and heading toward hell? Where would I turn them to? Is there a hell number two that's worse than hell number one? That doesn't make any sense. We don't have the power to save someone. We don't have the power to turn them away. But we do have the opportunity to be obedient. And to be obedient is to preach the Gospel and to be a bold witness. Some say it doesn't work to be bold. It never works. That really reflects an ignorance of Scripture, that attitude, and an ignorance of church history. I mean, the Bible says that God uses the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. 1 Corinthians 1, it also says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that perish, but to us that believe it's the power of God. So I'll take God at His Word. Amen. I don't care what man says. Plus, you have to be pretty ignorant of church history if you think it doesn't work to be a bold witness. I mean, go tell that to some of our Baptistic forefathers who spilt their blood. Tell that to the Valdoi from northern India, uh, uh, Italy, or the Montanists, or the Dantonists, the Novatians, the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Anabaptists, the Lollards, and all of these others that came before and spilt their blood with a Bible-based Baptistic witness. Tell them it didn't work. If it didn't work, then we would never have had a Reformation. Martin Luther and Calvin would have never stood up and done what they did in Catholic Europe had it not been for the seeds planted by our Baptistic forefathers who paid for it with their blood. First Great Awakening, George Whitfield, he was despised by the churches. He once was quoted as saying, the churches are closed against me, but bless God, the fields are open. He was known to stand in a field 
And he had such a natural, powerful voice that more, you know, there were 10,000 people could hear him. There weren't any speakers or microphones back then. I don't understand that. John Wesley, who was used by God in the, in the first great awakening, had this to say, you have no business but to win souls, so spend and be spent in this work. Tell those gentlemen it doesn't work to be a bold witness. I really could go on all night from history. If we as followers of Christ don't embrace our history, we are doomed not to repeat it and revival will never come. We really ought to learn our history and where we came from in terms of our heritage. But those things aren't taught anymore. They used to be taught in American history classes in public schools years ago. But God forbid you even mention they want to teach us today that the Muslims landed in America before Columbus did. It's amazing. People just write history. They just make it up and everybody buys it. It's called confusion of face. In the Old Testament, Israel experienced confusion of face. It's a judgment from God. And that's what we have in America today. Confusion of face. That's why we have who we have in political leadership. That's why we're going around teaching that Muslims landed in America first. I mean, it's, it's judgment from our Lord. Some people use the following excuse, I don't know what to say in terms of being a bold witness. This is a man-centered perspective. All God requires from us, my friends, is a willingness and resolve to obey. That's all He requires. He'll give us the words to say, even when we can't speak the language of the people. And I stand here knowing that for a fact. I remember once the Lord pressed upon my heart to lift up my voice and preach in Tiananmen Square in communist China when I knew or thought none of those people would understand a word I was saying. I don't speak Mandarin Chinese. I speak Nepali. I speak Spanish. I speak a little Hebrew, a little Hindi, but I don't speak Mandarin Chinese. But the Lord impressed me to do it. I took my Bible and I started reading and preaching. And I thought, what am I doing? I'm wasting my time. And as we packed up to leave, a young man came up and told us how much he appreciated what had just taken place. That he had become a Christian recently because his English teacher had shared Christ with him. And it was so encouraging for him to hear the Gospel preached in that place. I was able to give him some tracts written specifically for atheists because he had a lot of atheist friends. And he went from that place encouraged. All God desires is a willingness, and He'll bear fruit from it. I preached one time in Lhasa, Tibet, where you can get in some serious trouble. There are cameras everywhere, and we stood in front of the, the Tibetan monastery there that used to be where the Dalai Lama lived until he was exiled by the Chinese. And right in front of the camera, I thought, well, I'm going to share something for about five or six minutes. I don't speak Nepali. I mean, I don't speak Tibetan, but there were several different tourists and stuff standing there, and I thought, well... I'm going to do it anyway. I may be wasting my time. And I stood there and preached. And Ricky got in a conversation with a couple of English speakers. And I thought, I'm wasting my time. But I wanted to share the gospel and there was a willingness there and God honored it. At the end of it, I closed my book, Bible and I turned to walk away and I heard this Chinese man. He said one word and he walked away. He had been standing there the whole time and I closed my Bible and he said, Amen. And he just turned around and walked off. So somebody was blessed by it. All God requires is a willingness and a resolve to obey. So the excuse, I don't know what to say, isn't really valid. Jesus told His disciples three different times. Matthew 10, Mark 13, and Luke 12.
Don't even worry about what to say when you're called to be a witness. Before kings and governments and tribunals, don't even worry about it because in the moment you need the words, the Holy Spirit will give it to you. And I believe that applies to us as we go forth to be a witness. <coughs> Besides, it's not an excuse to say, I don't know what to say because the Bible tells us to study the Scriptures so that we can be approved of God and know how to give an answer to men that ask us. Some people would say, well, I don't want to offend someone. That's a barrier to being a public witness. That's really an excuse that reflects a misunderstanding of the nature of the Gospel because the Gospel by its very nature offends. When did we start thinking otherwise? Jesus said in Matthew 10, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. In Luke 20, He spoke of Himself as the stone which was rejected by the builders, but it's become the chief cornerstone. If you'll fall on that stone, you'll be broken. But if it falls on you, it'll grind you to powder. We have two options, to be broken and thereby be saved, or to be ground to powder. That's an offensive message, especially if you think you're good enough to get into heaven. John 3, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The gospel by its nature offends. Was Jesus worried about offending others when He said, repent or you will perish? When He said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins? Was Paul offended, worried about offending the Athenians when he rebuked them for their idolatry and told them they were superstitious people? Was Peter worried about offending or the offense of the gospel when he accused the Jews of crucifying Christ. No. I'm afraid I'm going to offend someone's not an excuse for those seeking revival or to be obedient to the Great Commission. There are benefits of being a bold witness. It's late. I'm really not going to go through all of this, but there are some benefits. If you're a bold witness for Christ, not only is that the fruit of genuine revival, but it'll give you a correct opinion of yourself. It'll show you what it is to be a fool for Jesus Christ. And then we'll see ourselves as we are, wretched sinners saved by grace. And that's how we need to see ourselves. Go out and get rejected for the Gospel a few times and you'll see yourself in your true light. And then you'll see what it is to walk with the same shame that people like Paul and even Jesus Himself did. And it really is a privilege. Paul said, I am, we are fools for Jesus Christ. We are worse than the off-scouring of all flesh. If you want to have your awareness heightened about how lost this world really is, how lost this community really is, be a bold witness for Christ. You'll be confronted with the lostness of this place real quick. Being a bold witness will bring your service and ministry into balance. The Bible tells us it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. That Christ left us an example in that aspect that we would follow in His steps. If we don't know what it is to taste the sufferings of Christ, how can our ministry and our service be in balance individually or as a church? If you want to... Bring some suffering into your life. Go share the gospel boldly. It will come. Trust me. The only two places in this world where I've ever actually been arrested and actually spent time in a jail cell for sharing the gospel was in America. And both times was in North Carolina. One was Catawba County, one was Pender County. 
Never really happened overseas. It could have. I was told I was under arrest twice in Bangladesh, but we got out of, got out of Dodge, per se, by God's grace. <laughs> Being a bold witness or bold evangelism is like steroids for spiritual growth, my friend. It'll strengthen you. It'll breed zeal in your life, generate compassion for the lost beyond what any church function, church covered dish supper, or church program can ever do. Trust me, I speak from experience. You know, there are two types of lost people in the world. The ones we know, the ones we interact with in our families, in our community. Sometimes those are the hardest ones to share Christ with, but we need to. Then there are the great masses of humanity we don't know. If you'll be a bold witness, it'll give you a way to share Christ with people you don't know. And that's a real pleasure. That's a real honor. Our boldness to share the gospel will serve as evidence on the day of judgment against those who reject Christ. That brings God glory. Jesus said, If any man hear my words, John 12, and receives them not, I don't judge him. I came into the world to save the world, not to judge it. But that one already has a judge that judgeth him. That is the word which I have spoken. The same will judge him on the last day. When we're rejected for the gospel, it's evidence against those that reject the gospel on the day of judgment because many people are going to level all kinds of excuses and accusations against God. And none of them will stand because the evidence is here. And to be a bold witness is to provide that evidence. That's a blessing. And if you'll be a bold witness, it'll also encourage, convict, teach, and revive other believers and the church. Paul the Apostle said, Be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I hope more than anything else that my example of boldness is not for my sake. I hope beyond anything it glorifies God, but I hope also that it would encourage others in the church to follow me as I have followed Christ and to be a witness. This is our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And this may be a broken record to some of you because I always talk about this when I come and preach here. But it's our responsibility. It's obedience. It's true worship. And it's the inevitable result or fruit of genuine revival. Plain and simple. Revival begins with repentance. It always results in the carrying out of the Great Commission with boldness. And that involves, by nature, evangelism and sharing the gospel with the lost. There's no other way to see it, biblically and historically. If you go study the Great Awakenings in American history, the Welsh Revival, the English Revivals, and all of these missionary movements that happened, the work of men like William Carey and Judson and some of these other pioneer missionaries, you will see these things to be so. When churches experienced revival, they became bold witnesses. There's no, other, uh, there's no other result in history. I'm going to end with this tonight. That's a theme verse for our ministry. We've been given a last day's job description, not only as Christians, but as the church. For those of us who would have Holy Spirit revival, this is our job description. Paul says the last thing he says to Timothy before he meets his demise at the end of 2 Timothy is this. 
I charge thee therefore before God and our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. But, church, watch in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist or do the work of evangelism. Make full proof of thy ministry. For those of us who would have Holy Spirit revival in our lives and in our church, that's our job description. Let's go do it. I'm sorry I've run late tonight. I trust you can bear with me. I know it's cold and some of you have to get up and go to work. I've got to drive home in the morning. Let me just ask you real quick tonight before we close. Are you saved? Many of you would say yes. Let me ask you two questions to follow up. Are you living for the Lord? Are you telling others about Him? If not, why not? These things are the fruits of salvation and they're the fruits of revival. I pray you'll ponder these things that I've tried to teach this week concerning revival. We didn't come here to organize a revival. We came here to learn about it, to seek it, and to be taught by the Holy Spirit. So, the real fruit is what will you do with that going forward? And my prayer is that the Lord will continue to use this church and you believers in these communities in these last days because it's dark and it's getting darker and therefore our lights need to shine brighter. Let's not be like that church of Ephesus that lost its first love and as a result, Jesus Christ said, I'll come and take away your candlestick if you don't repent. Do we want the Lord to remove our testimony in these dark days. Are we satisfied with that? God forbid. May we shine brighter.